0: Um, turn with me if you have a pew bible 925 is your uh is your page if you have a pew bible one of the ones kind of out in front of you you're going to want to have a you know a bible open whether it's your phone or or a a paper bible to kind of follow along but let's pray lord we're just so grateful for uh, the unity that we we sense under under your care um, under your provision, under uh, under your reign, and uh, we come together, and you do something that's a bit different than the rest of the world, and you, uh, and we feel uh, your presence here with us in a in a way different than when we feel it during the during the week. Even though we know you're with us there too. And so, grateful for this time and place, Lord, and we ask that you do lead us in your love, um, uh, grow our affections for you in our, in our time in your word. Uh, we ask this in your son's name, amen. amen. All right, so Colossians 3 today, we're, Colossians 3, we're going to be picking up in verse 18, uh, but just, uh, you know... It's been a while, but four months since the last time we were in Colossians, so I hope you have really good memories. Um, I'll give you a quick recap. The idea that Paul is writing and is, is communicating to the Colossian church really is this idea he's, he's trying to exalt the name of Jesus Christ above every other name, supreme over every other name. Okay, He's trying to address this issue... Um, because there's some, been some false teaching coming into the church. But we can see that he's trying to address this if you look in chapter 1, verse 15. There we see he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And look down at verse 17 he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He just keeps climbing the ladder above everything else. And then look at verse chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And this is really the thrust. For in Jesus, in him, the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been com- made complete in him, is what's intended there. All right, so that is... Jesus just above everything else, because like I said, Paul is addressing some teachers that have come in and started to say, yeah, Jesus is important, but not supreme. There's other pieces to this spiritual puzzle, that he's just one of many, so to speak. Now, Paul, if you look in chapter one, he's very happy with the maturity of the Colossian church. He's very satisfied in what the report that he hears back, but he's not going to let this teaching take root. Okay? Cuz he knows it will have damage on the gospel message. So he's going to he's going to uh, he's going to deal with these heresies. He does it in the first two chapters, 1 and 2. He's he kind of refuting, arguing against these heresies. But when we get to chapter 3, his focus goes from doctrine, the teaching, to practice, okay, orthodoxy to orthopraxy, right thinking, right belief to right living, and he kind of moves from that 30,000 foot view that you have in the airplane as you're flying over the city, and he goes all the way down to street level. What's this look like to be lived out, this good doctrine? What is this mystery? Uh, Paul always talks about this mystery and I wonder what the mystery is. He already told you what the mystery is. It's that somehow, some way, God has made a way for us to be unified with him, union with Christ. And what's this mystery mean for the day-to-day? All right, so he, if you look, again, we're just recapping. It's quick, okay? But chapter 3, where he starts to move towards how to live this out, he talks about a new birth in Christ and three new things that, They're given in that new birth. One, if you look at verses 1 and 2, they're given a new focus. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Set your mind focused on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So he gives them a new focus for their life in that new birth. He gives them new robes. You look down in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Take those things off of you. Take those robes, those those death robes off of you. And instead, if you look at verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Put those things on. Take off the earthly and put on these new robes of righteousness that represent the fruit of the Spirit. And the last new thing is attitudes. Down in verse 15, he starts talking about a peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. Thankfulness and the word of Christ dwelling richly in you. That that is our attitude, our disposition in this new birth. It's all summed up in verse 17 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to the God the Father through him. So that's how we arrived at verse 18. Okay? This all this amazing doctrine about Christ being supreme above all, how his supremacy above all gives us access to union with him through the cross. It's not a random arrival to these verses on Wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving wives. It's not a random arrival there. It's through that argument. It's not without the context of those things. It's Paul arguing for the victory over our sin by God, as we sung earlier, canceling the record of our debt that stood against us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We have to be reminded about this context because I think we can get to these verses and just read them like the Ten Commandments. That's not what's happening here. The context matters because God reveals to us Christ as our only source of life. And through that revelation, that's how we're propelled towards a selfless, God-focused living in every area of our lives. This is the main point of the whole sermon today. Our completeness in Christ is what leads us to conducting our lives comparable to Christ. Our completeness in Christ, him completing us, him coming down to fill what is needed, to redeem what is distorted, that completeness, that's what leads us to living lives comparable to Christ. So we come to our verses. Let's read. Starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So a, kind of a staccato addressing of various people, various categories of people. And we might I like to kind of structure this as basically three little couplets, wives and husbands, children and fathers, or children and parents, and masters and bondservants, three couplets that all go together. So why... I come to this and I start to ask questions of the scripture. That's a good habit to have. Why these specific categories to be represented by Paul? I think a couple, maybe two specific responses. Um, One, I think as he addresses these three couplets of people, he's kind of including historically all people. Y'all were children at one time. (laughs) You know, he includes especially in historically in that culture it'd be rare for a woman to be out on her own she'd be either the, under the the father's household or the husband's household and so there's not a every smattering of, op, of of option for category of person this would essentially include all people and so that's how they would read it that as he talks about all these categories it, Oh, there's no one outside the scope of this. No one. And so maybe you're sitting here at today's age where we do have a very more nuanced category of person, and you might feel like you're not currently being represented in one of these categories. Well, that doesn't take away from his point at all. And I'll get more to that on more to that later. So I think these categories do, Paul is essentially categorizing everyone, that all would be included in how the gospel comes down to the street level. Why just a word or two, though? You know, he doesn't give them, like, the ex- this exhaustive list of things that would, 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 be, would be for them to live these re- roles and responsibilities out fully. He just gives them one word, one or two words. So why so not exhaustive? Well, I think to answer that, he's already given them very general implications. Look up at, uh, you know, verse 12 as he starts to talk about what they were to put on. Um, Compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all these, put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony. That, was very general for all people to apply in all possible ways in their life. It's not specific at all. And so he's, he's kind of already started them out. Just try to do this. Just try to live in the, that new birth in this way. That he's trusting that the Spirit would teach them that the new life that they have through Christ, our new life that we have through Christ, would be an identity that we have systemically and not circumstantially. That is, it encompasses all of our life. So that's maybe one reason why he's short on specifics. And the other one, I think these areas that he does point out are probably the areas where there's the most redemptive potential on the table. These are things that the curse has brought distortion to. And he's going to address each of those specifically so that we can make those big connections to redemption. So let's start with the wives and the husbands. I know many of you here today have already seen, already kind of under grasp and understand the beautiful complementary roles a husband and wife are designed to take up. You've already accepted those, you see the beauty of it, but also know that there's going to be people here that hear submission and go and give you a little shiver. You know, what does this mean? Does this doesn't this lower the value of wives? Doesn't this lower the 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 worth of a woman? Well, I don't think so. And here's why. I don't know Greek. <laughs> I'm not very good at other languages. I know like Hola, and, you know. Um, I got that down. Uh, maybe my pronunciation needs a little work, but I, but there are tools out there that many of you guys know about, like Blue Letter Bible, where you can kind of look at, at, at the Greek words that are there in the original language. And there is an interesting dynamic that happens here, where this word about submission is different than the children's word about obedience or the bond servant's word about obedience. There's an implied choice. Or volunteering in this Greek word, it's hupatasso, Um and it, and it and basic essentially is is this idea of the wife placing herself to be arranged under and yielded to her husband's leadership by God's design. So in no way is there a sense of domineering or 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 um, or like a like a like a like a servitude or a bondage. None of that is in the language there. It's the wife choosing, volunteering herself to be put under the husband's leadership. And this is a beautiful picture of maybe the most important disposition for all believers, male or female. Surrender and submission. This is where God wants all of us to be. This is the place where he wants all of us to come—a complete surrender to his rule and reign and care in our lives, otherwise known as a united heart, a united heart that fears his name in reverence. You know, I've had a lot of opportunities to counsel men, specific husbands that we're talking about, and I, it's not like I've never said this, but. but there is a common thread that happens in those conversations about, man, I wish my wife submitted like the Bible talked about. Yet, that same husband is not being submissive to Christ in their calling. Like, submission, although given specifically to the wife in the marriage relationship, is on display in God's kingdom as supreme and important for men and women. In the upside-down kingdom of heaven, submission is beautiful in the biblical sense of the word. It's full of faith, isn't it? It's full of faith to be submissive. At the very same time, it's full of vulnerability, isn't it? It's full of vulnerability, and we wonder how is this possible and in our strength it's not but we can recall the amazing submissive and i would say i would doubt anyone in this room would say ugly but the amazing submissive yielding of jesus christ to god the father would anyone look down on that kind of submission absolutely not it's beautiful but is this submission that women are called to unconditional No, it's right in the verse. How are they to be submissive? As is fitting in the Lord. Ladies, your primary authority is Jesus Christ, not your husband. Don't follow in any sinful practice or or plan that he might try to bring you into, because you are not under that type of authority. You are first and primarily to be submissive to Jesus Christ. I, liked, I do like the way John Piper, though, balanced this kind of thinking out. He says, no wife should replace the authority of Christ with the authority of her husband. She cannot yield or follow her husband into sin, we just said. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. And I can't tell you how much my wife has done this for me. I'm not crying. where I have fallen short in my leadership and her disposition calls me out, calls me me to go to the cross again. That's beautiful. Nothing Nothing in this verse speaks about the intrinsic worth and value of a woman as a person or a child of God. A wife is equal in value to that of her husband, As the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, Since they are heirs with, talking about husbands to wives, since they are heirs with you, co-heirs of the grace of life. Co-heirs. So there is nothing in here about value or worth. Just distinction and role. Husbands are then addressed with their own command to love their wives and do not be harsh or embittered or resentful or sharp with them. This type of love that husbands are called to has no qualifier with it. It is meant to be modeled after Christ, agape love. Many of you know that word as unconditional. I like the the further thought, not just unconditional, but no expectation of anything in return. That's the type of love that the husbands are called to love their wives with. But why specifically does he address harshness or bitterness or resentment? Where does that type of bitterness come from? I would say unmet expectations. Husbands, guys, God is God. Your wife is not God. She cannot meet or fulfill the things that God can do to to bring you satisfaction and completeness. She can compliment you. She can complement what you need. She can bring out. She can bring you further along with her encouragement and her prayers and the way she supports you. But she cannot be God for you. And when we do that to our wives, we place a burden on them that they were never meant to take. And the only thing that happens to us is we become embittered towards them. And bitterness sets in like the winter freeze. I'm thankful we're coming out of that. Really, the whole marriage relationship and. Marriages. I'm going to talk about marriage the most today. We're going to get faster as we go on. But the whole marriage relationship is nested into a greater relationship. And many of you guys know this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. The marriage relationship is nested within a greater relationship, and that's of Jesus Christ in the church. So in Ephesians 5, we see this. Wives, Paul writing to another church about 100 miles away from Colossae, And he says to them, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Notice here, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the word of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is echoing back to Genesis, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We would never look upon the the way Christ loves the church, and the church loves Christ, as domineering it's beautiful it's comp but we also wouldn't say that it's the same Christ loves the church differently than the church loves Christ would you agree with that so there's such beauty in it but it, it doesn't mold it together into no distinction there's still distinction in redemption God removes the sin but keeps the order that he put in place Husbands, I know we re- sometimes I hear that ver- those verses in Ephesians, and I focus on this idea of um, <clears throat> loving the church as he gave himself up for. Because that seems very lofty. I'm going to step in, step in the middle. I'm going to step in the way of harm to my wife, or something like that. It's very lofty, very unlikely that you'll actually give up your life for your wife in a physical sense, but Paul brings it right down to something that we all know, loving yourself. I'm sure some of you are even thinking about how hungry you are right now, right? Lunch is on the way. You're very aware of things going on related to your physical body, how hungry you are, how tired you are. You need like some tension release or something. You're, 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 you're aware, you're so aware are you aware of your wife in the same way? Her spiritual needs, her physical needs? That's what that's the type of love that Paul is putting forth. So we want to ask the right questions here. Husbands, if you found yourself, like I've alluded to, asking, how can I get my wife to submit like this? How can I get her? What do I do? You're asking the wrong question. Who, who's being addressed? And how are they being addressed? The question you start with is, what have I given up for my wife lately? What has it cost me to be her husband? What sacrifices have I made to enhance her well-being? Christ loved the church so much that he gave the ultimate sacrifice for her. That's the model of a husband's love. That's the question you start with. If you have brokenness in this relationship, So how do you do that? Remember, it's not a Ten Commandment verse. It's out of a new birth. You love your wife like Christ loves the church through the completing work of Christ in your life. You have the freedom to love her because he has loved you in the same way. Instead of being harsh with your weakness or my weakness, Christ came gentle and lowly to stand in our stead. You can, husbands, you can love in that type of freedom. It enables you, it unfetters you to love your wives that way. But wives, you're not off the hook. How can I get my husband to love me like this? No one ever talks like that, do they? <laughs> Again, you have started at the wrong place as well. The question you start with is how am I seeing the beauty of submission? Am I seeing the beauty of submission? Am I seeing submission like Christ's submission towards God the Father, equal but distinct? Do I see submission in the positive that it is, or in a negative that is not represented in God's word? Am I fighting that disposition to yield to God's design? Am I empty, women, am I empty because I've been trying to get my spiritual strength from this low life? Maybe not that far. (laughs) Am I getting my spiritual strength from the wrong person? The church willingly and lovingly enjoys its submission to Jesus. That's the model of a wife's love. Women, you love through that same completing work in Christ. You have the freedom to submit to him because Christ is your identity And he shows you how valuable you truly are. You can submit in that type of freedom. Just imagine the the, the marriage that the husband is trying to live this out fully and the wife is trying to equally live it out. Would you see any distinction? Almost, Almost nothing. Right? It would just be this beautiful, sacrificial, I, you know, finding my greatest joy is finding my wife fully fulfilled and her greatest joy is finding me fully fulfilled in Christ. And man, how beautiful that is. Jerry Maguire, you guys all know the movie. Had it all wrong when he's like, "You complete me." No, Christ completes you. And it's from his completion that you can pursue your heart, you can pursue the heart and joy of your spouse in God's name and his power and his glory. Let's move on to children and fathers, children and parents. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There's not many children in our midst because they're all in class to hear this. So don't drive home, parents, and throw this in their face uh, to make life easier for you. What'd you learn about today, sweetie? Oh, do you want to hear what we learned about? You know, that's not what we're doing here, okay? You, we do, have, if we want to communicate, because we are called to communicate these truths to our kids. And if we want to, we should do it in the beauty of the commandment, okay? Communicating the heart of God in the commandment. we were reminded of the Ten Commandments, where it says, honor your father and mother. This is the only commandment with a promise, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. He's always had a, his heart for, kid, for kids to obey and by their obedience to their parents represent a faith in their, their, their Lord, their Savior. So, But this obedience, children obey, it's a little bit more forceful than the wives. Okay, It's coming under what is said. It's a, it's a, it's a little stronger. And obedience is expected in everything except for, again, things of sin and evil. And look at the, how the kids are motivated. Children, for this pleases the Lord. The child that by their obedience to their parents has the ability to please the creator of all. It's amazing. And it's a, it's a sweet motivation. Instead of being judges of their parents' rule in their life, they faithfully obey and by that they express a faith in the one who gave them that their parents. Right? It, it, it's kind of like the kids are looking past their parents in a sense as they listen to the the, the 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 rule of their parents in their life. They're looking past towards God the Father as their parent guiding them in obedience. So Not only do they express faith, which is beautiful, but they also witness to a greater relationship of, again, Jesus, the Son, and his obedience to God the Father. And so kids can honor their parents in that same sense. But we come to the fathers as well, okay? We come to, again... Spurgeon says it this way: The duties are mutual. Scripture maintains an equilibrium. It does not lay down commands for one class and then leave the other to exercise whatever tyrannical, thank you, oppression it may please the children to obey, but the father must not provoke. These couplets, these three couplets, there's always an equilibrium to them, and fathers are warned about provoking or exasperating, or nagging, or stirring them up to anger. Why are they warned about that? Because we're prone to it. What's the cost? Look at the cost. Fathers, do not provoke your children. What's the cost? Lest they become discouraged. That word for discouraged, disheartened, a broken spirit... This is the wild irrationality of sin, that you, as a father, as a parent, could potentially be so involved in your own demands for life that you would break the spirit of your own flesh and blood to get that. That's wild. That's what sin does. So how do you provoke, guys? One, overprotection. Two, showing favoritism. Three, not appreciating their worth, the child's worth. Four, setting unrealistic goals for them. Five, failing to show affection verbally, physically, whatever. Six, not providing for their legitimate needs. Seven, lack of standards in your home. Eight, destructive criticism. Nine, neglect. Ten, excessive discipline. This is how you exasperate the break of the spirit of a child. I've been guilty of these things. i asked for forgiveness from my daughters for being harsh with them. Mm. It's serious. The only way we, we can truly parent our kids, father our children, is through the mercy of a loving father that has fathered us. My reputation isn't on the line. My failures aren't on the line. My shortcomings aren't on the line. My pride's not on the line. All that is dissolved in my union with Christ, and that is where I parent from. That is where I want to parent from. Lastly, bondservants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the last couplet that we have today. You see there's an increased amount of words for this group. Right? Only a couple little words for the husbands and wives, children, parents. Increased amount of words for this. I think it's pretty cool, actually. There's some thought that the reason that there's an increased amount of words is because Onesimus is in the traveling party, and we're not going to get into a whole study on Philemon and Onesimus and all that stuff. So I'm really talking to the people that already know the story. But Onesimus is essentially a slave that uh, got away from his master, got saved and got sent back to his master with, by Paul in Rome, and he's with the party. And I think he, Paul's writing a letter, hey, when you go back to him, do it this way. Do it in the way of Christ. And so there, maybe there's a little bit more here because of that whole dynamic. It's just a fun thing to consider, and we'll move on from that. Anyway, a lot of times... We'll we'll apply this to employees and employers. Anyone ever heard it applied like that? Yeah, it's very common. I think it's reasonable, but we shouldn't get a, we shouldn't leave the original context so quickly. Okay, we'll we'll get to employees and employers, but realistically, the people reading this this letter for the first time were in a culture and time where there's a range of servitude dynamics, from unrighteous slavery without any rights. All the way to a servant choosing to be part of their master's household forever. And being benefited with all the rights of a household, being part of the household. And so there's a wide range. And sometimes it's Christian to Christian. Sometimes it's pagan to Christian. Sometimes it's Christian to pagan. There's a whole range of that kind of thing happening. And Paul's not squashing that whole dynamic yet. He's saying, here's how you live even in this kind of culture, even in these kind of dynamics. But like I said, today we do kind of receive it as an employer, an employee, a bond servant, and a master. B- things of business. All right? And then there's another here, a strong command to obey, the same one as the children received. Coming under what is being said. Putting yourself under what is being said. And see, let's look at what's addressed specifically about this type of obedience. You see, this type of obedience is also motivated by seeing all things in relationship to God. Notice how they're not to obey, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but instead contrasting that with sincerity of heart and fear of the Lord. Their obedience is meant to be directed towards God, not towards their earthly masters. And so this comes. There's a very uh, low-hanging fruit here. Does your work ethic change based on which eyes are pointed towards you? Do we change how we work based on who's watching? When I was a a young lad. think I was working in Chambersburg at the age of 13 at a restaurant, Italian restaurant, and which is just wild to think about, like letting your kid out at 11 o'clock at night into Chambersburg to go home. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I was working at this restaurant as like a bus boy, you know, low man on a totem pole. It was awful. Um, and I remember I would Find find reasons to go to the walk-in freezer, because there I could hide for five minutes, ten minutes, maybe maybe till someone comes. I don't know, but that is not the type of service that God is talking about. He's talking about a service where we're always working, like Christ is right in the room with us, which is really radical, wouldn't you say? Especially as it relates to this original context. See, there is no other group of people that has so little to gain by working diligently when no one is watching than a slave. What benefit do they have? And yet, God is saying the the gospel is so radical that you can have such trust and satisfaction in your union with Christ that you'll be able to work for this person even when they're not working and you're going to do it like you're doing it for the Lord. That's, that's a, quite a satisfaction. It's almost like they are able to look past their earthly masters and work for a greater purpose, the glory of God's name. And he, he, they are given support in this, right? How are they given support? Look at Inheritance, and justice, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus, and for the wrongdoer will we be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. He's promising that inheritance for you who has no inheritance, justice for you who has no justice is on the way. You show me trust by working for me. And in turn, I will give you these things. So this is wild. But what we do matters to the Lord. Would you agree? But why we do it matters to the Lord. I love this focus that he has on sincerity of heart. You guys see that? Sincerity of heart. But with sincerity of heart. Simplicity of purpose. I love these, this word, singleness of heart, undivided heart. Those that you guys, I know a lot of you guys here work in the corporate world. And you go into these meetings and, I, and there's this concept in the, that, that world, in all worlds, but it's I think most prevalent in the corporate world where the people are trying to climb the ladder, is intent has a scent. Intent has a has a scent. You can go in and say a bunch of things that sound good, but typically people smell intent. And so if it's to climb the ladder, yeah, that stinks. And you can try to cover it up and spray the perfume to try and cover it up with something pretty, but then it's just a mix of gross and perfume. Intent has a scent. And so that's even, that's even visible or palpable or what's the word for a scent? Smellable? Smellable? To the people around us, how much more for the one who sees down into our very soul? And we think we're hiding. God wants us to feel what it's like to have an undivided heart, a singleness of heart. He wants us to have that. The the, the, the the idea there of an undivided heart is like not braided together with anything else. Like you imagine three strands of rope making, three strands making a rope, that's 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 wrapped up, that's braided together. He's saying, no, an undivided heart is not braided together, it's not intertwined with anything else. A couple of verses here, James 4, 1 to 2. Maybe a lot of you guys know what, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What makes war within, what makes quarrels within different people, within different relationships, what makes those quarrels? A war within your heart. Your desires and God's desires at war with each other. David cries it out this way in in his prayer in Psalm 86. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And he knows he he has a divided heart, so he asks God to give him this heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. So work, again, we're talking about work dynamics, work out of this place, Christ's example. This is beautiful because when I think about Christ's example towards doing the will of the Father, I always come to the Garden of Gethsemane, right, where you see a real interaction where what Christ wants is almost not what the Father wants, in a sense, and so he says, he, and he just stays there with God until God gives him the, the, that Christ allows his will to be dissolved into the Father's will. And I think that's what we can do if we're struggling with this concept at work of working for someone that, you know, doesn't, doesn't value, doesn't see, doesn't, doesn't care about the things of the Lord, doesn't, isn't heading in the direction that we want them to head, We can go to that garden just like Christ and say, Lord, not my will, but your will. And we can allow our will to be dissolved into his. So I don't know why the people put a chapter break here, but verse chapter four is very much tied. You guys see the rest of it, right? I'm not the only one. I don't know why there was a chapter break. They didn't ask for my opinion. Uh when they did this thing. Um, but either way, you see not just bond servants are addressed, but masters. There's a balanced exhortation. What is to be the characteristic of their treatment? Just and fair. That is to be the characteristic. Uh, so, yeah, you guys are bosses around here. You guys are in, this, in charge of people around here. The characteristic of your treatment towards those people that are under you should be justice and fair, fairness. And that's meant to be held near them, not just in the absence of bad treatment, but it's actually meant to be actively brought close to them, justice and fairness. And how are they motivated? They have a higher master who they are in service to. And you think it it reminds me of the parable of the unforgiving servant who just like received all this mercy from the king. To have their debt wiped away, and then when choked the guy out that owed him a couple dollars and didn't pass on the mercy. That's the perspective. So we come to the end of our time. What is the main point that we have here in these three couplets of relationship that? Not only these relationships, but all relationships are going to be radically affected by a renewal of mind and a completeness that is found in Christ because our relationship to our Creator has been redeemed. We have that relationship redeemed, and that therefore then affects all other relationships. So what if you weren't mentioned in here? What if you're maybe single in a season of singleness. Maybe you don't want to be married one day. Maybe you're a widow. You know, there's, there's very, there's a lot of nuance to, to dynamics here that maybe you don't feel like they cover you. What's Paul's main point? He's saying completeness in Christ that I've argued for matters for the day to day. And so therefore we all, no matter what our lot in life can find a way to take the completeness, the satisfaction we have in Christ, and bring it into our daily lives. Would you agree with that? So my last um, maybe call to action, this is. Um, Are you seeing symptoms in those relationships that would allude to a divided heart? whether it's a romantic rela- spouse relationship, parenting relationship, um, any, really anything, any, any relationship, do you see symptoms that would point to maybe the problem here is a divided heart? Then I, I do think you should go to God, go to, go to his word, go to brothers and sisters in Christ, and talk specifically about those symptoms. What are those symptoms? You should do that. But maybe today as the, as the team comes up and as the team uh, sings you know, a last song, as we come to the close of today, if you want someone to pray with you for that divided heart, the root of what's going on, cry out to God for, remind me again about how complete I am in you how I need nothing outside of you. If you need someone to pray with you about that, that's what I'm inviting you guys to do today, okay? Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for what we have uh, in our union with you. And I know many are here, uh, Not maybe not many, but Lord, you know who's here and, and who has laid down, surrendered their, their very nature into your care, into your forgiveness, into your redemption. And you know those that haven't. And so, Lord, I, I do pray that the beauty, the, the, the benefit of what it might feel like to be, to have an have a undivided heart, no war within, between us and you. That they might see that and be drawn to forgive, to find forgiveness, salvation in your Son. Lord, thank you so much. We praise you for who you are. It's in your Son's name. Amen.